0: welcome to into the Colaverse, a podcast that takes us on the unique journeys of faculty in the college of liberal arts at ut austin join me your host frederick luis aldama as we learn of the many ways that our faculty and their cutting-edge work is transforming the world today oh my goodness it is my huge honor to be here with dr maggie Rivas rodriguez Founder of Vos's Oral History Center, professor in the School of Journalism and Media, and director of the Center for Mexican American Studies here at UT Austin. Welcome, Maggie.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
0: Wow. So, you like what a journey. I mean, just even looking at it on paper, you know, you've UT Austin BA journalism in um, the mid 70s and then a master's degree went on to do a PhD um, at University of North Carolina um, and then coming back to UT Austin as a professor um founding this incredible voices oral history Center, which is internationally renowned. Tell me, Maggie, what was like was there something in the water you were drinking as a kid that I don't know, sparked this interest in, well, first kind of news media um, recording uh, through kind of oral history. Tell me, what was going on for the young Maggie?
1: Um, I grew up in a small town 30 miles south of San Antonio called Divine, D-E-V-I-N-E. And so uh, I don't know that there was anything in the water. Uh, but there were some things that I noticed growing up. So in our town, it was half Anglo and half uh, Mexican-American. And yet, the people in leadership positions were not Mexican-Americans at all. It was all Anglo. So that that kind of is an important important part of my upbringing because I grew up noticing that. And, and no one had to say it. But I knew there was something wrong with that picture. So when I came here as an undergraduate to UT Austin, and I found classes in Mexican American studies, it was very exciting to me. Uh, And so that helped me begin to formulate some of the questions and answers that I'm still formulating the questions and answers, you know, fifty odd years later. But that's a that's a big part my my upbringing, seeing that that. uh, the lack of political and other kinds of power. I mean, not that the, this was not a powerless community. We had very powerful people, including my parents, who, in their own way, stood up for the civil rights of the Mexican American community. So I saw all of that.
0: Hmm. Yeah. That one of the really important links in all of the incredible work that you do is precisely between oral history voices archiving um, but in a way that links those voices and those that presence, those important shaping um, subjects, um, peoples in our communities and our lives in history and things like the um, the different wars, in you know, really important civil rights struggles, this connecting between oral history, And journalism, can you, you know, explore that a little with me?
1: Yes, that was my, my introduction to oral history was actually through journalism. I was a general assignment reporter at the Boston Globe in the 80s and uh, early 80s. And we were working on a magazine piece with a, it was a small team of reporters working together and the editor for that magazine piece said, we're looking at developing something like a Studs Terkel approach to this. So I did not know who Studs Terkel was. So I went and I found uh, a Studs Turkle book and loved his approach because for, for people who don't know who that is, he's a, an old Chicago radio man who started off doing jazz shows and he would play the music. Then he would interview some of the musicians. And little by little, people were more interested, it seemed like, in engaging with those interviews. He's a great interviewer. Uh, Than with the with the actual part of the show part of it, but at any rate, he ended up getting um, getting involved in going out in the street and interviewing people in Chicago about life in Chicago, and that ended up becoming what became um, what became books on uh, Americans during the Great Depression, Americans during World War II. Uh, their attitudes toward working, and you think, how can anybody make a book about working? Interview excerpts about people's attitudes toward working. How can you make that interesting? And it was fascinating. And it's the kind of book that I couldn't put. I couldn't put it down. I mean, part of it was just his skill as an interviewer, but the 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 bigger part of it, I believe, is people sharing their life experiences and their attitudes, and people that. They have you You have a philosophy and you have a strategy about working, whether you are sweeping floors or you're the president of the United States. So everybody has something to say about it. So that was my introduction. And um, and I kind of um, glommed uh, on to that. And one thing that I always do, this is a, so every time I read a book about World War Two or the Great Depression, whatever, I look to see how many Latinos were included in that book. And so Studs Terkel, one little blind spot was that he did not include a lot of Latinos. And I love him, in spite of that, I do love him. But I saw that there was uh, there was there's a, a big there was a big gap, so I felt like there was uh, there was something that we could that we could do about that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, something that sadly continued, right? And in fact, many of us pushed back against Ken Burns um with that documentary right where it seemed like a deliberate erasure of latinos in the war
1: <laughs> well you know that was the big thing that we were involved in mm-hmm. you, i don't know if you knew that but we were we were the the ones who spearheaded that defend the honor was the big national umbrella group that uh we we wanted him to include latinos but he was adamant about it's done it's and and he ended up including interviews with two Mexican Americans and one native American at the end of it. But the book, the companion book does not have any Latino voices. And, uh, and really the, the, the documentary that most people will see will not include those interviews. So um, I ran into, to someone recently who said that he feels that Ken Burns has gotten the lesson and he now makes it a point to include Latinos. Um, I think, I suppose that's right, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not the best person to address that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I came at at this through um, one of the professors that I worked with at UC Berkeley when I was an undergraduate, Mario uh, Barrera. Oh, yeah. And and, um, so, yeah, that's how I um, was introduced to this. I didn't know what was going on, to be honest. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, Mario Barrera did interviews, I believe, three of our interviews with World War II vets. And did them with high quality professional equipment, and so because of him, we have some of our some of our best interviews are with that Mario did.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we. So I brought him to the Ohio State University, um, and so those videos were screened, and we had um, a really productive, fruitful conversation. Um, also, a kind of awakening of people, at least in the audience, to the fact that there was there has been a deliberate erasure of of our voices. Um, in spite of the significant presence, right in something like the, the you know these wars. Let me ask you, Maggie. Um, there's this really interesting connection and even possibly tension between serving patriotism and activism that runs throughout your work, mm-hmm. and. Could you explore that for us and, you know, for the listeners here?
1: Yeah. So, throughout from the very, very first interviews that we did, um, one, one thread that really ran through all of them was civil rights. And so that generation, largely but not exclusively, or solely was uh interested in just working through the system. There were a lot of people who wanted to work outside of the system and protest and become more active in in trying to uh to create the tension so that those changes would be made. So that is that was always there. And in fact the the person if I could if I could kind of like make a draw a string from the very first person that I said we need to get that interview, it was a um it was a, a lawyer in San Antonio named Pete Tijerina. Pete Tijerina had been the um, one of the founders, really the person who founded the Mexican American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. And um, he had he had been in World War II. Came from Laredo, went to you know ended up getting a law degree, and found that every one of his he would he, he became the civil rights. Person in charge of the of Lulac, so anybody who suffered some discrimination in Texas would write a letter to him. And then he would write a very stern letter to some restaurant or store or something or a newspaper, and then but there was no there was no way that he could do, get them to do anything. The only way to get any any enforcement of that was to file a lawsuit, and lawsuits were incredibly expensive. So Pete heading out would uh, he and he knew that. But the one thing that he said. That helped him out were, was that newspapers were his friends, and so a lot of journalists ran stories about this action that took place that somebody was was fired or demoted or uh, wasn't given a promotion because they were Mexican, and it was it was pretty blatant. So so when I interviewed him in two thousand, I suppose nineteen ninety nine two thousand, I can't remember what year it was, but it was toward the very beginning of the project, and um, I interviewed him. And he said he admired the people that were activists that marched in the streets, but he was too he was scared to do that. And I think that that's true for a lot of people not not just World War II generation. I think today people are afraid of exercising that First Amendment right to protest. And I do think it's so important that when when it's it's a visible protest and it's very um, it's it's in your face that people say, this is it, yeah, Yavasta. Yeah, it's it's an important way to to let the world know that this is something that we're not going to allow. So so that was the the activist that, or or lack of activism back in the back in the um in the 40s and 50s. But then that generation was a generation that were the parents for my generation and a little bit older than me too, because I, you know, my parents were a little bit older when they had me. Um and those were the people that started to really question. And a lot of them were able to enjoy uh, college educations. And and once you start understanding, reading more, and expanding your worldview, then there's certain truths that you can't unsee. And I think that that's one of the reasons that we had uh, that Chicano generation that was out in front protesting and and uh, very visibly letting the world know about their displeasure.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the amazing yeah, your Texas Me- Mexican Mexican Americans and post-war civil rights um book that came out in 2015 where you t- you talk about him and of course others in the edited volume that you do with um that you published with Ben Olguin. There's also um you know this kind of Hey, look. We need to also pay attention to Afro Latinos and the experience there, okay. um, along with, of course, and this is in all of your work. But the tijanas on the home front, um, you know, youth activism and so on. But can we? Can you um, maybe share a little bit about why it's important for us to when we need to ask questions that haven't been asked constantly? but we also need to kind of put center stage um things that even within our own communities aren't being sometimes asked you know like afro-latinidad yeah, um, our families and our mix our mestiza mixed um, ancestral past that tend to lean in you know because of the media and the mainstream t- more toward the the Euro- European and less, um, into our indigeneities, um, African included?
1: Yeah. Uh, it's a big question. Um, so in the late 70s, I had a fellowship to Peru. So i lived in Peru for, for nine months and traveled around the southern cone of South America. And in Peru, I went to something that they called uh, a peña, And in in Peru, what it means is there's there's a kind of a house, kind of a party in a restaurant, but there's all night entertainment and dancing and all night. So it goes on from like 10 o'clock at night until six o'clock in the morning. And they had uh, black Peruvians do some of the some of the dancing. That was the first time in my life that I understood that they were black Peruvians. Now, that could be attributed to a lack of, of, of imagination. If I had understood more about the history of Latin America, I could have understood that there's, yes, of course, there's there's black people throughout the Americas and, and in Mexico. But that's not something that I had ever been exposed to. If you watch uh, at that point, and maybe it's different now because I don't watch a lot of Mexican television anymore, but if you watch the, the Mexican news or telenovelas or movies, you would see a very European, and that did strike me. That 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 part about the European um, Mexican always struck me because they all had blonde, you know blonde, blue eyed, green eyed people, and I'd say, well, I go to Mexico and I don't see those people there. Uh, so that that part of it, I I had understood, but what I had not understood was was the Afro Latino uh, experience, and I think that that's the, it's so it's interrelated with everything. It's it's interrelated if you read a history of Latin America now probably it's different. But at the time, there was not that inclusion of the different people that make it up. You know, it really was more of um, you know, and then and then this government took over that. So you weren't you weren't reading that. So, you know, it's it's part of really the 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 historicizing of Latin America and what it means to be a Latino has really improved so much in the last twenty years. It's it's pretty breathtaking and, and it's welcoming because you think uh, we have as a people, we're we're made up of so many different races and and Asian too. You know, there's there's also in Peru, the best restaurants were the chifas and they were by you know run by Chinese immigrants. So they're Peruvian, they're also Chinese. There's also Latino. So putting that all together is is uh, I think it's it's something that it's going to be an ongoing. Um, effort for all of us to understand a little bit about what it means to be Latino.
0: Mm, yeah, really important. You mentioned with um Pete Pete yeah, Tijarínua. Tijarínua. yeah. His yeah, his um he mentioned that newspapers um being his friends, and I get that. Um, but of course we also know um your work included here, um, but also at auto santa ana you know his bright brown tide rising his one in a hundred and so on that there are metaphors that the media uses that have um negative you know consequences produce negative public perceptions about our communities um so what are we what do we do with that
1: i think the the number one thing to do with that is um is calling calling news organizations out when they do that. I'm, um, you know, I'm a member of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, and it's ongoing. When they see evidence that there is a, um, an instance of this, there's, you know, there's an awareness that we can all bring to it. Uh, but it is ongoing, and I do think that it's important that when when we do see this, that we we let them know that this is not acceptable the same time, I also think it's it's important for us to let let folks know when they've done something right. I was just talking about this today with someone. It, we do, uh, Voces does this thing for Hispanic Heritage Month. We do uh, daily stories, 90-second stories every day, and then we do long stories, four minutes long, uh, once a week. And they're about people, Tejanos, people who are Latinos from Texas who have made a contribution in some way. This is our third year. We just finished our third year of doing this. We hardly ever get any responses from people unless they have something negative to say. And so this last time we got something, and it's, you know, I don't mind because I can deal with it. But the students who work on this and really put their hearts and souls into it, they get so discouraged that they don't get any positive feedback. And then the one the one person said, has something nasty to say about what they did. Not that they... they and the criticism was not that they did a bad job. The the criticism was, you you showcased one person when it was actually his mother who had laid the groundwork for this. Well, the problem is that the mother didn't have her contributions documented, so his contributions are the ones that you can find on Wikipedia, but not the mother's. And it gets back to another larger issue with with uh, with our Latino population is that we need to we need to have more books. We need to have more memoirs. People need to write their memoirs. We need to have more really, really good oral histories. Uh, The scholars that that you know and that I know all over the country work really hard to be able to produce as much as they produce. But it's kind of a drop in the bucket compared to what needs to be done. Um, So to the extent that we can facilitate it for each other and lift each other up and encourage each other, I think it's vitally important that we do that.
0: In 2007, you wrote a piece, news coverage of Latinos, we're not there yet. Are we getting closer in 2023?
1: We're a heck of a lot closer in 2023 than we were in 2007, <laughs> and way closer than we were in when I graduated from UT in 1976. Um I think the big difference has been that we now have more Latinos and Latinas reporters and editors. We're still at that place where we need more people in uh in gate, gatekeeper positions, managing editors and editors. Uh, but we are so much better off. If you look at any given day the the New York Times or the LA Times or the Dallas news the Dallas Morning News or Houston Chronicle you'll see a lot more Latino uh, surnames. And that's just the surnames. And then there's people that don't have Latino surnames that are still Latino. Um, so so we're doing so much better. And and I think the other part of it is that even within newsrooms, uh, the Latino journalists, by and large, are pretty sensitized. And so when they see something wrong, they do speak up. And so it's got to be an effort from from within so that we Latino journalists who work within a news organization cannot just be there um, enjoying the paycheck and writing nice stories, we also have to shape that institution to something that's going to be more um, more representative of their population. Not and not just our population. If if you see something that they've done wrong with any population, I mean it really is. It's it has you have to be an active participant. You cannot just be keeping uh, your seat warm. And then from the outside, the community really has to step in. And I'll tell you something. When I was a newspaper reporter, if that newspaper got one letter to the editor about a story, they'd say, Oh my goodness, we got this, we have a lot of uh, interest out there with one letter to the editor. So that's why, and, and in that particular piece, um, I remember there was a, a man named Danny. What is Danny's last name in that piece? Anyway, he was someone who has since passed away. But um, he would write letters to the editor all the time, and he would call them to task all the time. And he was such a needed voice. He was such a, a wonderful, needed voice. But we don't always have a Danny. Um, what is Danny's last name? God, it's going to drive me nuts now. He passed away a few years ago. He was just, he was super smart, uh, very, very thoughtful in his approaches. And And always was constructive. It wasn't just saying, you know, you screwed up. It's like, okay, you could have done this better. These are ways that you can do better.
0: Mm. Calling the media um, and its representation of our communities to task really important. You know, speaking of early publications, and you have quite the long list, um, I have to say. But let's go back to 2003, you were already thinking about the internet and unique perspectives of an alternative Latino online publication, 2003. And today we have, oh my gosh, this proliferation of ways that our voices are being documented, that are being archived um news our news I, what is it latino usa is what 30 years now um uh, you know maria Hinosa, her you know F- futuro me- media group the latino um ampersand stories that our colleague dr uh, Fallus and at texas a&m in san antonio I, so much oh my gosh my head is spinning um in two thousand and three, could you have predicted something like this?
1: <laughs> no, no, no. And you think about it. I mean, the you're doing a podcast. How many podcasts do we have? Latino podcasts. It's it's super exciting. It's super exciting. I'm it gives me a lot of hope for the next uh you know, for the next generation of of young people coming coming up because I I see some of the work that they're doing and I'm like they're thinking about things way way beyond what I would have thought of when I was their age, and even today, it's opening my eyes. So, so yeah, no, I don't, I don't think any one of us, and I, I do think publication means something different now. Publication used to be having a newspaper, you know, and I, and I, I was, I did newspapers when I was in at UT. We worked on a, a Mayo newspaper called El Despertador, and I've run into to Chicanas. Of my generation, a little bit older, who who produce their own newspapers and the hard copy of newspapers. These days, you, you don't have the expense of doing all that. These days, you can publish in so many different ways, and I do think podcasts are a form of publication. It's a different platform, but it's it's a way of of communication. So I think that it's a really important, valid way of of, of producing content that that is important.
0: Speaking of the younger generations gen Z um <laughs> and it, it always surprised you know it's so funny it's it sh- this shouldn't surprise me but um these real like incredibly politically aware young activists that if you if I saw them walking down the street in I'd think that they just walked off a you know, some kind of designer fashion runway. You know, it's not like when I was, you know, at Berkeley as an undergrad and, you know, we kind of dressed a certain way if we were like politically active. And so now it's this weird, like Gen Z that, you know, don't judge that book by its cover. That's for sure. Right. Um, but let me ask: In your teaching, you have a course oral history as journalism, and you, you've just so beautifully shared with us why oral history is journalism. Um, but and then you have another one covering the U.S. Latino community, reporting Texas, reporting words. Where where do you want your students to? What do you want them to take away from some of your
1: classes like this? So in my oral history uh, classes, what we do is they learn about oral history methodology and they learn about the subject, whatever the subject is. And every semester that we study this, it's a different subject. So in the first years, it was world war II, and then it became the Vietnam war and then it became different slices of the, of, uh, of political engagement. So what, And in every single one of my classes, my students, by and large, would say, I never knew this before. I never had this in my history books. I didn't learn this in high school or in any of my other classes. Of course, it's impossible for you to learn all of history and even U.S. history and anything. But honestly, I do know... In my generation, I don't think in my history books we had anything about Latinos at all, anything about the contributions of Latinos at all, or activities or, you know, nothing. Um, I don't know what the history books look like today. I would love to see that now that I think of it. I'd love to see that. Um, But I do know that some of these other topics, like the 1975 Voting Rights Act, which extended voting rights to uh, language minorities, such as Mexican Americans, Puerto Ricans, um, uh, Japanese Americans, and some people uh, indigenous people in Alaska, mainly, that had a real huge impact on Latinos. and and students don't know that. They don't know about that there was any Latino involvement at all in the night in, in the Voting Rights Act. Of course, now it's it's kind of moot point for the most part. But they don't know about that. They don't know about uh, how did we end up with Texas A and M, Kingsville. How did we end up with Texas A and M Corpus Christi? Um, How did we end up with UTRGV? Um, And so that's a little bit UTRGV is a little bit out of the equation. But there was the U.S. um, uh, There was a Texas um, legislative bill that created that provided funding for these new universities. And it came It came from uh, a lawsuit that MALDEF had filed on behalf of all these border universities and communities saying that, why does UT Austin and Texas A&M, why do those two universities get all of the resources? And we're here with lousy labs. They don't have PhD programs because the, the way the system was built was to... Uh, to not allow them to to even have a PhD program. You had to have so many professors who had PhDs in order to have a PhD program. And they couldn't get those professors because there was no PhD program. So who wants to go someplace where there's no graduate students? So that was what happened, the South South Texas Border Initiative. So so we learned about that in a few semesters. And it's just fascinating because you can go almost anywhere and there can be um, kind of a nice way of looking at this. What we, what I try to do for my classes is we're looking at a specific research topic. And that research topic can be either written about that semester by someone, or you can do a compilation where, you know, for the World War II thing, there were several semesters that we were able to use. But for the, for the South, South Texas Border Initiative, we had about three semesters that we can easily, not easily, but we can package it into um, a really compelling story about those people that were at the forefront of that of that of the lawsuit and then at the forefront of the legislation how it all came together and what were the effects of that and it's a fascinating story that that uh still hasn't been still hasn't been fully told that um, i'm hoping it you know it gets told in in um law journals i have a, a good friend in uh in san antonio at saint mary's named al kaufman who was one of the mall deaf lawyers at the time. So he's written a couple of, of law journals, but to get it out into a wider audience is going to require a, a, another kind of book, another kind of approach.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. I just learned a bunch. Thank you, Maggie.
1: Sure. Um.
0: <laughs> I just learned so, a bunch
1: in this conference I went to for right Because I'm a, I'm like, oh. I came back and like, oh man, there's so many other things I'd like to be doing.
0: Oh, gosh. So, yes. So, on that note, and kind of the bedside table, proverbial bedside table, mm-hmm. you know, what's what's exciting to you um, right now? You're fresh back from this oral history conference in Baltimore. Um, I imagine you're brand, you were just blown away at some of the kind of new scholarship going on there. Um, maybe you can share a little bit about that. And then, yeah, what's exciting for you sort of generally? Um you know, in your reading, your viewing, um, your very active engagement with the world.
1: Yeah. So what's exciting to me, you know, at this conference, one of the topics that has come up is how AI can be used in oral history. Uh, Not to do interviews, because I I don't know that we'll ever be there. Uh, But we were playing with the idea of using AI to develop summaries from interviews. And then Someone is calling the alarm and saying, "Well, you're feeding AI the a way for them to uh, replicate this and use it in their data banks." So I don't know. I don't know about that anymore. I thought I was. I thought I was. Uh, we were. We hadn't. We have done one interview that way. So I don't know if that's going to be something that we're going to pursue. But it's something that we're going to. The oral history community is 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 looking at what are the pros and cons because we don't want to enter into anything in a um, just blithely and just assume that mm-hmm. there's no downside to it. Uh, that's a, a pretty big thing. The other, the other big thing, and I, I'm trying really hard not to say that I'm going to do this, but um, the issues of the day, the the issues that we are facing worldwide, the biggest one is climate change, and I would love to uh, to delve into that and look at what, how different communities are responding to climate change, are being affected by climate change, are studying climate change. What could we now do? What are we doing right now to be able to, to have an impact on the future? Um, and I I talked to just one, you know, I went to one panel discussion and they were talking about it and I'm like, oh man, I don't want to think about this because if I think about it, if I say it, I have to do it. So I'm not saying I have to do it. However, I do think it's something I am thinking about because uh it's something that it's an existential threat to us all. and having having us converse about it and not just for UT, but you know if there's a way that we can get other universities and institutions involved in and looking at this, uh, we might be able to have some some pretty good um you know some good data. But beyond that, kind of just talking it out. So that's kind of a a um, a big issue. Um, and the other big issue is just I I listen to all these other people who teach oral history in the classroom, and come away with new ways of uh, of engaging students. I, I, I've never had a problem with students engaged after they get into it. Uh, but sometimes it's not always been easy to get the enrollment because people see oral history and they like you know it doesn't sound sexy. I think it's super sexy. I think oral history is super sexy just the the words, but I think a lot of undergraduates might might not see the the uh, the appeal.
0: Yeah, there's so much. In fact, that um, the voices oral history. uh, My goodness, you know the the voices animation, the art, the multimedia kind of work. You know, my goodness, um, so much happening. Um, I this the barrio dog. Um, and you know the, the and how it's kind of linked to this Latino T- Latino Pia, which I think is out of Germany. If I'm kind of reading that right, anyway. Bottom line is, um, Dr. Maggie Rivas Rodriguez, thank you. This has been amazing. Thank you for all of the work that you're doing um, to you know, along with others, um, to make heard, to make seen those traditionally erased and unheard uh, these significant transformative shapers of history walking us through um, all of the kind of nooks and crannies of your own journey um, within this short period that you could um, and reminding us of well yeah we need to keep our eyes wide open but with a critical optimism thank you maggie
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Into the Coliverse is produced by the University of Texas at Austin's College of Liberal Arts. Sound engineering by the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. You can find Into the Coliverse podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening and see you next time.